Welcome to the Axial Podcast. Axial is an early-stage investment firm based in San Francisco. We partner with great founders and inventors investing in early-stage life science companies often when they are no more than an idea. Axial is fanatical about helping the rare inventor who is compelled to build their own enduring business. Hey, Bruce. Uh, how are you? Good to have you on the, the podcast today, and we'll have a really cool conversation about your research around protein design and talk about computational biology in general, your story and career. Uh, how are you? I'm doing all right. Yeah, excited to be here. Thank you for, for having me on. Absolutely. Yeah, Bruce, just really huge fan of your research out of the, the Arnold Lab at Caltech. Uh, especially, I, I read your paper, the cell paper you published last year around uh, machine learning uh, assisted direct evolution. I think I got that right. Uh, I just read that paper several times. We had a discussion around it some time ago, and I was really impressed with uh, the pride you take in your work and just the, the, the analogies you use to break down these really complex concepts of machine learning and really distill them down into something useful in biology. And I'm really excited to talk about your research today, and we can kind of get into uh, all the like the nooks and crannies of what you're working on. Uh, but maybe the you kind of start the conversation off. Maybe you spend some time to discuss kind of uh, how you got into science, uh, you know, yeah, how you got to Caltech and stuff like that. But even where you grew up, I knew you grew up in Chicago. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I grew up in Chicago. I actually started out in the UK, funnily enough. Uh, moved to Chicago when I was six. Um, and so, yeah, I grew up in Chicago. I did my undergrad in St. Louis, so I stayed in the Midwest for that. I was at WashU, Washington University in, in St. Louis doing biochemistry at the time. Um, and I think like many of us in who end up going down the, the track that I did, I, I was originally pre-med, so right, I was good at science, thought, all right, well, might as well go and be a doctor then. Um, but while, while I was an undergrad, I started getting into research. Um, and then once I got into research, that was kind of where I found out that that was really what I was interested in, right? Like kind of building new tools, developing new knowledge. Um, so I, I finished that, that, that degree, I did a degree in biochemistry, finished in 2015 now, um, before moving out to California. So moved out to California to do a job at a company called Intrexon. Um, so my, my, my job out there was essentially, you know, like high throughput DNA construction. So real industrial metabolic engineering. Um, and you know, that, that, that got me interested because we were doing so much high throughput stuff, got me interested in data science, data analysis, programming, which ultimately led me to Caltech and doing the types of machine learning work that I'm doing there. But, you know, that's, really that's cool. a real high level view of how I got where I am. Yeah, I think it, and we'll talk about Intrexon, because Intrexon is worth discussing, um, and yeah. then we'll talk about your research. I'm always fascinated when, we, when I talk to like high-level scientists, because I'm a little jealous of you. Because of the work, when I read your paper, I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I wish I could do that. So I'm always fascinated, <laughs> like, seriously. It was a tough time. <laughs> I, I know, it's a lot of stuff. I, can, I read the paper, and whenever I read a paper, I, I can, a good paper, I can always feel the suffering, I can feel the late nights. Yeah. I can feel, I, I, just, I can just feel like, you know, I just, I just know what it takes to, to uh, do work like that. And so, but maybe to like step back a bit, um, sure. you know, St. Louis, exploring different ideas. I was pre-med for a week too. 
And then I was like, no, okay. I can't. I, 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 uh, this pre-med stuff is too, too intense for me. Uh, science was, uh, <laughs> science is cool. People, we got attracted to science. For me, at least, I got attracted to science mainly to the people. I like hanging out with the people. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, uh, for you, at least, what was that initial spark to say, you know what, no pre-med, I want to do research. Yeah, there, there were two that I can think of, actually. So funnily enough, I guess I did all the pre-med requirements still just through my degree. But the two things that changed it for me, one was uh, organic chemistry. Um, oh. So for most people, that's the dreaded class, right? Organic chemistry, especially if you're a pre-med, everybody always talks about that one. But I loved organic chemistry, particularly kind of the idea of taking you know, simple molecules and building complex molecules from them. Um, but really the puzzle that was around that, right? Like, how do we do that? Answering that question of how do we get from these simple things to these complex things? So I really like that kind of synthetic approach. Um, and that pushed me more towards engineering. I've always liked building things, right? Like even as a kid, I like building up like Lego, sort of my favorite thing as a kid or connects if you've ever heard of that. Uh, yeah. So building things. And then I got into biochemistry and this is kind of the second spark uh, where I learned what at the time I suppose was really in its you know, early stages, or I guess it had been around for maybe 10 years, but, you know, it wasn't mainstream, at least uh, outside of the biotech community. Um, in biochemistry, I learned about synthetic biology, specifically metabolic engineering, which is the idea of, right, you take a bunch of genes in, uh, in an organism and you essentially rewire the organism so that it makes new molecules or new products that are useful to humans from simple things. So it's kind of in a way an organic chemistry um, analog in, in uh, biology, right? Taking simple things and building complex things. And so that's what got me into research. And that was the type of work that Intrexon did as well and why I ended up there. Cool, yeah, I love Orgo too. I love the kind of the, yeah. the, the, puzzle, the, game, the, the game of moving electrons. It's really fun. Yeah. Uh, actually, yeah, I, was so, I was so good at Orgo. Uh, I became a teaching fellow for a year, my junior year. I was like, yes. I was like, a, I was yeah. an oral god. I was like a legend. Yeah. I can, I can make any time. I can go on the chalkboard. Which had just on a side note, my oral teacher got him Eric Jacobson, very okay. famous chemist, and he was such a beast at organic chemistry that he'd be on a chalkboard yeah. doing a reaction mechanism with two hands. It was incredible. <laughs> it was incredible. This guy was like doing moving stuff and, and 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 like you know he'd do a reaction with one hand and an eraser with the other. It was like yeah, it was yeah. it was legendary, but okay, yeah. you're at St. Louis. You do all this cool yeah. uh, this cool stuff uh, in, in terms of research and learning. I love St. I love the University of St. Louis, um, uh, and uh, it was a really fun little campus. Uh, and so then uh, you you're, you're kind of get interested in bio. What was the spark to get you to go to Intrexon versus going to grad school versus going to you know hedge funds? You know you're graduating yeah, college. You know, I'm assuming you had a lot of options. Why a trucks on? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, in part, it, it, it continued the type of research I was interested in, right? In undergrad, I was working on uh, kind of more metabolic engineering projects, or at least metabolic engineering related projects. That was the interest, right? I, I, I always figured I'd go down that SynBio route, that metabolic engineering route. Um, and then Trexon was working on those those projects uh 
I, I don't even know if I'm allowed to talk about it specifically what they were working on. <laughs> but uh, they, they were effectively working on projects, right, of taking these real simple feedstocks and turning them into like higher value fuels or higher value uh, pharmaceutical product, products, um, that kind of stuff. And so I wanted to get involved with that, get a little more experience, particular, particularly on the industrial side. Um, but, you know, I had kind of actually already decided in undergrad that I would go to grad school. And that was really solidified for me when I was in, um, when I went to Intrexon, because there's this kind of unfortunate glass ceiling um, in the industrial biotech world, where if you don't have a PhD, it can be quite difficult to climb up the ladder. It can be done, but it's a lot more difficult. So in a way, it came out of necessity, <laughs> right, um, to, to go to grad school. But saying that at the same time, I really enjoy just research and having that freedom to build up my own tools that I thought were useful and, and, and necessary for the field um, was not something I could necessarily do while I was at a company, right? Um, but when I was at Caltech, I was able to basically direct my own plans and do things that I thought were interesting and useful. So there were I mean, two I think things I would say. That makes sense. I think the latter part is invaluable because leaving college, it's probably, probably get a job for a year or two and then go to grad school if you can if you can pull it off um, yeah. because you get a better perspective. I often find from my, I, when I, was, I, I went to grad school straight to college, horrible mistake. Okay. Shouldn't yeah. have done that, right? I should have just got a job. I probably wouldn't have gone to grad school. I would have realized it doesn't fit my personality. I just had friends yeah. who had jobs in, in between and they killed it in grad school because they had, yeah. they knew what they were going to do. You know, I think sometimes yeah. you go to grad school and you don't know what you're going to do. And so then you're Absolutely. like, you're, you're aimless and you spend seven years yeah. doing research that maybe doesn't make an impact. But you, that was not the case for Bruce Whitman. So Bruce no. Whitman, go to, you know, Bruce, Bruce Whitman shows up at Caltech <laughs> really hot. So, okay. How do, how do you had, had a plan. <laughs> yeah, had a the plan. Bruce, the perspective you had really a plan. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that perspective was super helpful because, I mean, my, right, like I said, we, we were actually trying to build a system from ground up. It was... Uh, well, well, my specific job was um, molecular biology. So basically we were doing all of the genetic engineering for, for the division, but we had to do that at high scale. Um, and like I said, I love building stuff. Yeah. And so I was building all these automation things, building all these Python scripts, building um, you know all sorts of kind of data analysis, software support, lab support as well, right? I was working in the wet lab still at the time. Um, and I remember one day talking with my boss, just kind of more about the whole process, right? Because there's a lot of protein engineering in the process. And I remember I'd ask him, you know, there, there's got to be a better way to do this. Because <laughs> what, what, what we were doing was what is the standard um, is just what we would call screening, right? So making kind of semi-random or uh, I say semi-random because they're usually informed in some way, but still there's an element of guessing to it changes to our pathways or to our proteins and and then hoping for the best, right? Looking for the best. And I remember saying there's gotta be a more efficient, better way to do this. Um, and that's what got me interested in machine learning. Um, so it all kind of came together, right? And Trexon showed me kind of where the, where I felt the there was room for improvement in the field and, it, and where I could kind of put my skills that I'd learned there and, and before in particular in that kind of high throughput science, um, that, that automation, right? That understanding of how to develop things at scale, put, put new things together 
um, to drive me towards, yeah, doing a PhD in machine learning. But like I said, specifically for the types of things that I was interested in, which was protein engineering. Oh, okay. So Intrexon kind of showed you the power and the potential of scaling the biology. And so then you realize, okay, this is kind of, that'd be a good project to work on. Uh, and in terms of machine learning, did you have to teach us how, how did you learn all this stuff? <laughs> did you have to like... <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the pro programming, I taught myself uh, completely. Um, so it, it actually came out of necessity. We, we, we had so much data at Intrexon and, and no way to handle it for a while. We were working with Excel um, and, and it just, it, it wasn't enough. We needed things to be faster. We needed things to be automated. So. I taught myself uh, Python at, at that time um, and started writing the scripts for my team um, to kind of help push things along. I learned how to write a database as well and store that stuff. So the programming side, I taught myself. Um, wow. the, the data science and machine learning. Um, so obviously I took some courses in that once, once I was in my first few years at Caltech. Um, but like with any PhD, a lot of it is, is learning. And the, I would say the real value of a PhD that I didn't know before, you know, going to um, going to Caltech is kind of learning how to learn. Um, so there were some seeds that were planted in the classes, but then, you know, I had to learn a lot along the way as well, um, because this field moves extremely quickly. And I, I'm, I would be pretty sure that, you know, most people in the field would give the same answer. Um, I think a lot of us, well, we, we come from various backgrounds and it's a very interdisciplinary field. So we all have to kind of teach ourselves something, whether it's the bio side or the computation side. That's interesting. Okay, cool. I mean, good for you. I mean, programming, I know to program a bit. I know the Python, I'm a script kitty. I can do Python scripts and it's, it's uh, sure. beyond, beyond that is pretty intimidating. Yeah, I hate, seg yeah. I took a CS class in college, seg fault. I, I just can't deal with it. I, is it when it's a seg fault, I'm like, you know what? I'm done. I'm I'm done for the day. When I when I when I see a seg fault, I'm like, you know what? Close my computer. I'm gonna yeah. go play basketball. You know, that's kind yeah. of. <laughs> you know, that's what I knew. I I'm not gonna be a programmer when I when I had that response because I have friends who see seg faults and they like get really into it. They become like a detective. Yeah. And I, and I was like, that's not for me. Okay, so you go to Caltech and yep. Caltech is like the monastery of science. You know, you can walk yes. across the campus in ten minutes. It's very, yeah. it, it, it attracts a certain type of personality. Um, yeah. And so you go to, Cal why did you pick Caltech? And then how did you, what was your first year like? Did you rotate in a few labs or did you kind of know you wanted to work in France's Arnold lab? Yeah, um, so how I picked Caltech, um, I mean, it's a number of factors really why I chose it. For one, I mean, I applied to various programs, you know, biochemistry, chemical biology, um, bioengineering. Uh, but I really wanted to do bioengineering. Um, that was the program that I was most interested in. Um, and Caltech was one of the few bioengineering programs um, that, that I applied to. Um, and so that, that was a big win automatically. But yeah, also I really wanted to work in Francis's lab um, because I knew they were doing the type of stuff that I, I was interested in. I remember during my grad school interviews talking about, you know, kind of replacing the organic chemistry toolkit with biological um, biological catalysts or enzymes. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, Francis, yeah, Francis, yeah, Francis, yeah that, that makes a lot of sense. I think Francis is kind yeah. of the, the leader in direct well, yeah, evolution. And yeah, and, and so, she created directed evolution, right? So <laughs> Exactly, and she's pretty cool. She 
she has motorcycles. I think Frances is a pretty badass. I like her. Yeah. Uh, I follow her on very interesting life. Yeah. I follow her on Twitter. I'm like, I'm a huge fan yes. of her. I'm a huge fan of her. Just her. her. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I think like Caltech, I interviewed a Caltech bioengineer as well. And I, I think I have like Elowitz there. You guys have, uh, oh. uh, what's that other guy's name? Oh, there's that, uh, oh, uh, David Baker's contemporary, Kevin, uh, Stephen Mayo. Oh, that Steve guy's Mayo cool. Is there. Yep. We've got Steve, Steve, Steve Mayo. Mayo's Caltech is there. Yeah. We, we, I think oh. there are a lot of heavy hitters that, <laughs> exactly. So it's kind of you're kind of in this epicenter now, where yeah. you're you're kind of this talent hub, where yeah. you're coming in. You have a set of tools and questions you have. Now you're kind of engaging world class talent. Maybe at a high level, you can discuss the Arnold Labs kind of research agenda, sure. and then how yeah. you how you fit into that. Because you know you know you're, you're bringing machine learning to the direct evolution kingdom. Uh, you know, you have you well, have not me on my own. Now you own your own. Now you own your own. A group, a, a group, a group of insurgents or yeah. collaborators, whatever you want to call them. But you're coming into the kingdom, and you're trying to, you know, you're trying to uh, fit in. And so, how did uh, maybe talk about the oral lab, the, the research in general, and then how you kind of slotted into that uh, those projects? Yeah. So I would say at the very highest level, what we do is. Uh, is called protein engineering um, and it's essentially the idea that right proteins are these biological macromolecules you can design them or engineer them to do things that are useful to humans um, the ones that our lab is most interested in the Arnold lab is most interested in is a class of proteins called enzymes and so an enzyme is basically a, a protein catalyst they're what are responsible for doing most of the chemical reactions in, in our bodies and in you know, most, all of life. Uh, we all run on enzymes. Life would not exist without enzymes. Um, but it turns out you can actually kind of coax these enzymes. You can evolve them um, to do different chemistry as well. So chemistry that's either you know, completely unrelated to life. So that's some, some branch of the work that our lab has done evolving chemistry that's completely new to, life, to, to nature. It's not being seen as far as we know. Um, and so that, that's the big picture idea. Somebody will you know, have a application, some reaction that they wanna run. Um, and then we try and find an engineer, an enzyme to do it. And there are many processes for, for how you do that, but the lab is particularly interested in a strategy known as directed evolution, um, because that's obviously what, what Francis invented, what you famous for, what you won the Nobel prize for. Um, and so proteins themselves are actually made up of these things called amino acids. I think most people are familiar with amino acids. Um, I hope so. I hope, I hope if yeah, they're not, anyway, we, we have a bigger, uh, we have a bigger problem. We have a society yeah, a bigger problem. <laughs> most people have at least heard that word before, right? <laughs> I, think, acid, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. Wait, you know what, so on, you, a side you, note, on, a, on a side note, I was yeah. in a conversation once and some yeah. lady, or some, I don't know, I think a guy maybe uh, asked me like, who invented RNA? And I was like, well, that's a really uh, no. hard, that's a, that's a really hard question, isn't it? Like, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but okay, so you're, you're, uh, direct, you're describing direct evolution and so the proteins are made up of amino acids. Yes, yeah, so proteins are made up of amino acids and there are 20 different amino acids canonically, you know, with, with some exceptions, but we can say 20 for our purposes here. 
And basically every protein is a different combination of those amino acids. So say you have a protein that's 100 amino acids long, right? Then there are 20 to the power of 100 possible proteins of that length, right? So that's all possible combinations of those amino acids. The job of the protein engineer is to search through that incredibly massive you know, number of possibilities to find the protein that does what we want it to do. Um, uh, we often like to just remind people that 20 to the 100, that's already bigger. It's a bigger number than there are particles in the universe. So this is a massive space that we're trying to search over. Um, and obviously there needs to be some kind of strategy to do it because in no, you, you could never actually search that space. Um, so directed evolution, actually, the, the key idea behind it is, well, nature has been making new proteins for billions of years and humans are ourselves. We've been engineering animals, even if we necessarily didn't know what we were doing, right? Or plants for, for new tasks. So for instance, you know, all our domesticated um, animals, dogs, they don't exist in the wild. We just kind of selectively bred for that. Most of our food, uh, right, corn, there's no modern corn doesn't exist in the wild. We, we, we evolved for that. Um, and so the idea behind directed evolution is let's take the same approach as nature and just evolve for what we want. And so you make random changes, just a small number of changes to a protein. So you substitute amino acids randomly or semi-randomly, and you just screen for something that is better than what you had before. Right, so you go into the lab, you test your reaction, and you say, okay, is this better? Yeah, if it's better, you keep it, and then you mutate it again. And you keep going through that cycle until you reach whatever, you know, whatever level of activity, whatever, however good of a protein that, that you wanted. That's, that's directed evolution. Um, and most of the lab still works in that space, just on various different, you know, enzyme classes or various different reaction classes. Um, my PhD was more on the tools development side. So it was the idea of how do we move away from random guessing or semi-random guessing and, and kind of do a little more um, informed predictions about what mutations we want, right? What changes we want to the protein to improve it. Absolutely. I think yeah, maybe we can like, maybe we can discuss the progression of the field and then we can end that your research and then uh, yeah, sure. so, uh, uh, when, when was direct evolution really, my, my understanding is like the 80s, 70s or 80s, but maybe it's too early. No, it or too a, I, 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 earliest, I believe the earliest paper is the 90s. I should know that. Okay, cool. <laughs> it's like the 90s so, that Francis created it. So sometimes I talk to friends of mine and like, when was chemical, chemical biology invented? Maybe the 90s by Stuart Schreiber? But they're like, no, Jacob Minot in the 20s or something or 30s invented it. So it's like, I'm always, yeah. I'm always hesitant. I, I sometimes, so like you know, people would argue things are older than they are. Maybe they are. So okay, direct evolution is coming on the scene in the 90s. Yeah. What, are the, what are the kind of like the seminal moments, the seminal discoveries or papers uh, from then to now that kind of, maybe our exemplary of the field's progress. I think everything from the trip enzyme and making that do various things to sure. unnatural amino acids, maybe um, stuff like that. Yeah, there, seminal papers. I mean, the, the original one is obviously a, a seminal paper. I don't remember the name and title off the top of my head, but essentially showing that you can do this because no, yeah. nobody really thought to do it before. Um, and, and that 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 was the key moment forward. 
but since then, I mean, the, the, the real power of directed evolution is its simplicity, right? Yeah. All you need to do is to be able to make a mutation to a protein and then to be able to screen for, for what you're interested in. So I would say it's less about seminal papers and more about, you know, major impacts, how it's mm. kind of transformed the way that we can do things. So ph pharmaceuticals, for instance, um, have been transformed by enzymes um, because they let you make these very specific chemical modifications to a very complicated molecule that we just couldn't do before we had things like directed evolution. It would have been extremely difficult. And there are a number of papers out there, far more are coming out where you're actually kind of chaining multiple enzymes together um, to do that. So, you know, that's kind of a seminal impact. It, 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 engineered enzymes <laughs> are now everywhere. Uh, it's yep. textiles, you know, agriculture, or our, our food, it, it, it's everywhere. Yeah. Absolutely. It's their detergent. You know, it's like everything. Yeah, it's one of the more famous examples, detergent. Yeah. And so, and okay, a hard so it's a good too, right? Because you're taking this protein that likes to exist in water, right? Everything's water based, and you're making it go into this highly kind of non polar, oily environment, and it still works. And you need to evolve it to be able to do that. Yep. There's a that recent paper out of the Ellington lab out of Texas that was doing kind of the design of enzymes for posse degradation. And so, you know, kind of there's so much work left to be done. And so, direct evolution yes. progresses over the next of two to three decades uh, and then you start bringing machine learning to the problem to make it yeah. quote unquote more systematic uh what is yeah. what how how was what was it um, so it's like direct evolution is i don't know uh, do, do you think it's random i don't think it's random but no maybe that's one uh so it's not it's not it's not random and then what was your con no. how did how did you see machine learning improving direct evolution yeah. um it was, it was kind of the premise there yeah, so you're 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 not making you're making random guesses or semi-random guesses in, in directed evolution, but the process itself is far from random. Um, you're 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 not just randomly guessing and hoping for the best. Um, so yeah, the, I, I can break into kind of how I think about the differences between the two. So oftentimes, we protein engineers in general like to think of um, this thing called a protein fitness landscape. Which effectively, if you're imagining kind of like you know an XYZ coordinate system, you can have all of protein space, so like all possible proteins in the XY plane, and then protein fitness is in the Z direction. Um, that that's obviously a simplified view, but you imagine like this rugged landscape, right? So imagine that they're they're you're looking at this mountainous space, kind of from the ground, everything is possible proteins, and then these peaks, these mountainous peaks. These are fitness, as we would call it. And fitness is really just however well your protein does what you want it to do. When you're doing directed evolution, what, what you're trying to do is you're starting, say, at the base of one of these mountains. But you don't know which, which way is up and immediately. You have no idea which way is up. But you make random probing guesses all around you, right? And you see which way is up, and you take that step up. So those random probing guesses are the mutations, and that step up is just taking forward into the next round of directed evolution, whatever the best protein is. So you're just kind of greedily, as you would say in kind of computer science, walking up that peak. You're, you're climbing the peak by navigating up it uh, with your random guesses. 
machine learning, the difference is you're more trying to build a map of the landscape, right? So rather than just going in the direction of the, the, the best um, protein, you're, you're trying to understand how does protein sequence relate to fitness. So I'm trying to map all of the different peaks in this landscape, if I can, if I have enough data, and then identify which is the best protein at the top of the best peak. Because you imagine with directed evolution, and this is actually gets somewhat into that cell paper, if you have multiple peaks on the landscape, if you're just going up, right, if you never allow yourself to go down the peak, then you might get to something that's suboptimal. It, it's optimal locally, right? It's the top of the peak, but maybe it's not the tallest peak that you want to get to. Machine learning can help you get around that because you're building that map and then you just look at the map and say, go here. That's obviously quite an oversimplification, but it, it's a way of thinking about the differences. Yeah, I think in the cell paper, and we'll put the cell paper in the description. I think the quote in the cell paper was, you know, direct evolution in traditional sense uses a single step greedy optimization. So it's like a, you kind of do, you kind of, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, after each round, you're doing like a single site mutagenesis. Whereas yeah. uh, your method, and, and, and Bruce was the lead author, it's a really awesome cell paper. I'll, we'll put it in the description so you can read it. And kind of the, 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 the method, machine learning assisted direct evolution. And, and it kind of, the, the, the quote was, uh, using kind of exploring uh, multi-site. Uh, maybe can you explain that where direct evolution maybe relies on a single site, whereas maybe a machine learning-based method maps out multiple sites, and that kind of maybe lays out the initial map for you to figure out where to start. Yeah, absolutely. So this kind of almost gets back to your question about you know what being the major leaps forward in development in directed evolution. Um, directed evolution is a screening heavy protein engineering strategy right that means that you have to go into the lab and you have to make a lot of measurements um, and those measurements can be expensive so ideally you want to minimize the number of measurements you do while maximizing the number of you know beneficial mutations that you find that's the goal um, so the way that you can minimize um, your screening burden is just by making single mutations to a protein at once. So, right, if I choose a position in a protein sequence to mutate, there are 20 possibilities there that I could, that I have to screen. If I choose two and I want to mutate two at a time, well, now there are 20 squared, there are 400, right? So all possible combinations between those two. If I want to mutate three, it's 20 to the third, 8,000 and so on. And so the screening burden balloons. Um, for many applications, you can only really get away with one just because your your screening burden is so low um, you don't have the capacity to screen that many so you'll only ever do like single mutant libraries you might look at multiple positions in parallel but you won't look at the combinations of mutations at those positions so that's what i mean by that single step 3d walk that's kind of the minimal screening burden way of doing direct evolution and there are definitely other ways to do it besides that right it's very context dependent on the screen you're interested in, but in the paper, we, we limit it to this limited setting where you're working with something that you really can't screen much of. Um, but if you do this one step at a time, what you're doing is you're ignoring the interactions between positions of the protein, right? Because proteins are very complex, big three-dimensional molecules, and all of the amino acids within it, within that protein structure, they interact with each other. 
Um, and this, this interaction can be important for protein function. So for instance, you might make a mutation that's beneficial in the context of some other mutation, but you remove that other mutation and now it's a detrimental mutation. We call that epistasis. If I go back to that protein fitness landscape analogy, that's what causes there to be ruggedness. That's what causes there to be multiple peaks or kind of weird shaped peaks in, in the fitness landscape. And so if I do that greedy walk going uphill the whole time, then I'll get stuck at a local optimum. Um, or if I'm if I'm lucky, maybe I'll get to the global optimum, but, but it depends on the path, depends the path I take using that greedy single step walk. The only way you get to the global optimum is by screening all possible combinations. So that would be in the case of the paper, we look at four positions. So I would have to screen 20 to the fourth or 160,000 protein variants, which is often in most cases, completely impossible, impractical um, to do with direct evolution. So this is where the machine learning comes in. It, the, the, the very core idea behind machine learning in that paper is, okay, we want to look at all 160,000 because we want to get to the global optimum if possible, not one of these local optima. So rather than screening everything in the lab, what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a subsample, a small number of variants from that landscape, right? We're gonna make and evaluate a small number of them, then build a machine learning model to map the landscape and use that map to find the best. So we can effectively, what we're doing is we're screening all 160,000 in a computer, which can be done in seconds versus months or maybe even years, depending on your screen in the lab. Yep, absolutely. I think uh, it's a really important concept. From my understanding, I'm a geneticist and, and some of a biochemist. Uh, direct evolution is path dependent. So where you start kind of is, is really important to where you yeah. end up. And, and sometimes if you don't start in the right place, you might not be able to explore the full uh, combinatorial space. Um, and so maybe okay, so the, the paper cell paper gets into training on I think I think ten to the two variants of uh, uh, or maybe maybe more or less. But, but also one quick question I, I never asked you this question uh, why uh, why do you why do you work on G G was it called G domain protein or something I have no uh, clue what the G, protein does G protein domain B one yeah yeah why. Um, yeah. <laughs> So first off, we, we need something that we can actually test the method out on. Um, so we, we need a published fitness landscape, right? We need something where somebody's gone and measured all these combinations. And like I said, that's really hard to do in most cases. GB1 and has a very specific type of fitness that actually lets it be measured in extremely high throughput. Um, so we have that data set available, and, and that's why we use it. It's out of necessity that we oh, look cool. at GB1. There are no other comparable data sets. What a bummer. We need, we need, we need more know. data. <laughs> what, a bummer. what a bummer for all the proteasers in the world. We need to uh, map out the fitness landscapes for every protein. Let's make that a, let's make yeah. it a priority. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, okay, so the, what, was, what was the size of that initial sample set you had to generate? Was I think, was it 10 to the 2 or maybe less or maybe more? We used 384. Um, so we okay, did cool. that because that's kind of on par with what you might see in a normal direction evolution experiment, right? Trying to keep them together. We also did some lower ones, but 384, we, yeah, is what I use for most of the experiments. And that initial data set and using in a training machine, build a machine learning model based on it. I think yeah. the paper allowed you to uh, uh, predict the fitness of 
hundred and something thousand different variants, and you yeah. actually were able to find one with a you know I think eighty x more fitness than the comparable one that would be discovered using a very traditional direct evolution method. Was that the case? And, and, and maybe maybe like what was that? What was the when you discovered that when we saw that data all come yeah. together? What was your initial impression? Was it like is this too good to be true? What's the catch? Or like, what, what was your feeling when you, when you, when you saw that? No, it's a, it's a great question. We used, we used a few different metrics. What we, so the, actually the original MLDE, the strategy was something I worked on as a rotation student with Zach Wu. He now works at Google DeepMind. Um, so he actually originally came up with this MLDE idea um, and we worked on the GB1 landscape then. Um, back then, yeah, we were doing 384, just randomly drawn from the landscape, right? Like a random training sample from the data set. And, and we found at that point that I, we would hit the global optimum about 8.7% of the time um, versus direct evolution that single step walk around 1.2% of the time. So, you know, we were happy. Yes, it's doing, it's doing better <laughs> as we would have hoped. Um, but the point of the cell paper was, well, what could we do to push that higher? Right? Why 8.7? What are, what are the failure modes? Why why does it fail? Why does it only work around 10% of the time to find the global optimum? Um, and and that was the cell paper was trying to push that higher. Which I, I'm happy to talk about how we actually how I actually did that. Absolutely. Let's, let's, uh, how did you do it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. One of the other reasons that people tend to stick to smaller libraries, so only one mutation, maybe two at a time, is because with any protein, they tend to be locally fit. And, and what I mean by that is you make one mutation and there's a chance that you knock out protein activity, but it, it's, you know, chances are it could be neutral, maybe deleterious, maybe beneficial, you, you don't really know. If you make two, chances are much higher the protein has no activity. If you make three, it's even higher, right? The, the probability that you completely knock out a protein's function grows exponentially with the number of mutations you make to it. So if you look at a landscape like GB1, which has four mutations made at once, most of the proteins in there have a fitness of zero. You know, they, they, don't, they don't work, they don't, they don't do anything. Um, and in machine learning, you really need to have diversity in your training data that you're looking at. Most often people think about this in terms of the, um, the X values, right? So in this case, the protein sequences, we would want diverse protein sequences, but it's also important that the labels show some variation too, if, if you wanna get um, some richness. This is often thought about more in kind of a classification sense where it's like binary. So for instance, if your training data is all, yes, this is, a, is all dogs, but you're wanting to predict whether it's a dog or a cat, you train it on that data, it will never be able to predict a cat. It's never seen a cat before. Um, so the idea was, okay, we need to try and get training data that doesn't have all these zeros in it. And there are a number of reasons, you know, I gave kind of the, the high level explanation right then. There are a number of reasons why you can think of that you don't want a lot of zeros in your training data. But essentially, if I have all zeros in my training data, every machine learning model will just predict well, every protein in existence must have a fitness of zero, right? It doesn't get the, the broader context, um, which means that your predictions become essentially random. The more zeros you have, the less it can learn about the larger landscape. So the strategy that I thought up was this kind of focus training, or we call it focus training, machine learning assisted directed evolution, 
But rather than randomly gathering training data from the landscape, we actually use pre-existing knowledge to try and focus on gathering from areas that aren't zero, right? We try and look and get on the peaks. That's where we want our training data because sure, we might map the zero with a little less resolution, but we don't care, right? If I predict a zero incorrectly, so long as it's not so bad as to say that it's the best protein ever, it's okay. I, I can be a little off because I'm looking for the best proteins. Um, so the paper goes into how first, you know, kind of showing, yes, if we eliminate some zeros, we can really improve how often we see the global maximum. Um, and then going into practical solutions for how in the real world, right, when you don't have access to all the data beforehand, do you find training data that's useful that doesn't have a lot of zeros in it? And so I discussed some strategies for that. But our best result, I tested a number of conditions. The best result I could find in the simulations I did, the global optimum, 99.6% um, of the time, I think that was it. It was above 99%, nearly 100% of the time um, using this versus the 8.7 we saw before, the 1.2 that we see for that greedy walk. So the zero is getting rid of them or holes as we call them was very important. Interesting. So like just really the takeaway is for any machine learning model, whether it's from protein engineering or beyond in biology, really being more thoughtful about the initial data set is probably Yeah. Exactly. Maybe just as important, maybe more maybe more important than the modeling is you have to really obsess about that data. We have a but have a buddy Jacob Oppenheim. Yeah. I, I did a podcast with him some time ago. So he's a he's a biophysicist and he works in data science. And he has this concept of doing the unphysical experiments and doing a series of experiments that really set the down uh, for your model to make it a better yeah. classifier. And so I think sometimes people in academia and probably worse in industry where they just generate all this data without really being thoughtful about it. And then the model yeah. really turns that useful. Um, yeah. And so, yep, the more broadly, is garbage in, garbage out. It's what people say about data. Exactly. Yeah. And in biology, the issue of biology, it's like really complex versus other, you know, maybe versus driverless cars or or well, other types of problems. I think that's pretty complicated. Too. I don't know. I think I think I would argue yeah. biology is more complex. I'm be honest with you. I mean, like, uh, I mean, to be honest, like within biology, I think protein engineering is very trackable. I couldn't even imagine like modeling metabolic fluxes or something, you know, just like, I think that, you know, I, you do that in Trexon and I, or I have some buddies who try to model transcription factors. That's really hard. It's really hard yeah, actually. All, you think They're all yeah. very different problems. They're very different problems. Uh, it, in the way that I think about the challenge of the problem is, you know, how complicated is the space that you're modeling, right? Because at the end of the day, machine learning, the, the very simplest way, you're mapping from some space to some other space, right? Our classic linear regression is a rudimentary machine learning. And so how complicated is that relationship? The more complicated the relationship, the harder it is to model, unless you know the relationship ahead of time, right? So it, it's difficult to say what the most challenging applications are, but protein engineering is certainly a very difficult one. And so like, maybe gets, that's a really great point. And so maybe what do you see uh, a kind of where machine learning can make an impact on biology and what, what kind of framework would you use to say, you know what, we can use machine learning for these sets of problems and maybe it's yeah. too early for these sets of problems, given that we don't have enough of an understanding of 
the relationships between the cause and effect and or we don't have data do you have like a framework really good question. around yeah um i mean so some of the ways it's already being used and has been used to great effect for over a decade now is this idea of active learning um so it's kind of machine learning in the loop and essentially what you do is you have you train a machine learning model that tells you in your next round of evolution what data should i collect right and it, it's collecting data to both improve the model and also try and find an improved protein variant so that's something that people are already doing there are various strategies for it um, the, the type of stuff that i'm most interested in that i'd really like to get to is this idea of well, we call it, various people have different names for it, but I think most commonly it would be referred to as either zero shot or one shot learning, where essentially, right, you can predict which proteins do your desired function in the zero shot case without gathering any additional training data. Um, and in the one shot case, with only gathering a small amount of training data. That's where we would like to get to. Um, the MLDE paper is kind of an example of zero shot and one shot on, on a very small scale. But say, for instance, somebody could come to you and say, I want a protein that does this function. And there is no known protein that does that function. To be able to make that prediction and not only just get something that somewhat works, but something that works really well from the machine learning model, that, that, would, be, that would be success, right? That would be mission accomplished at that point. So far as I can tell, we're at a decent way off from that still. And so for enzymes, at least, and proteins in general would be would be tougher, but like for an enzyme, what, what what's kind of the prerequisite to get to that end game? Is it like a you know massive diverse catalog of different variants in their yeah. fitness? Uh, is it some other components? Yeah. Yeah. I strongly believe that our biggest uh, kind of limiting factor at the moment is data. Um, there, you could say something for modeling as well, but data is the biggest one because yeah, it, it, that is exactly what we would need, at least to start. At least to start, you know, even answering, to, to even be able to answer some of the initial questions. <laughs> we need a database out there that is protein sequence paired to protein function. And not only just, you know, what it does, how well it does it, a large database of that. And it has to be diverse sequences and diverse functions as well. Um, that would take a community effort. There have been some efforts to do that. Part of my PhD work, another paper I wrote was making a tool to gather all of our sequence fitness data, as we would call it, from a directed evolution run. And so with, with people adopting, you know, kind of the mindset, if we need to start gathering all our data and recording it and, and putting it in these easy access formats, that's when we can start making progress there. Interesting. And are there any like tools out there that are kind of progress in machine learning is definitely helping protein design. Um, is there some sort of intersection between maybe de novo prediction and protein design oh, that like yeah. is happening? Like, you know, you know alpha fold is kind of a little different. Alpha fold relies on training on large data sets, maybe not a low end, but is the ability to predict structures, it's actually, could that potentially speed up design of protein? I, I know it can, but like yeah. enzyme. Yeah, people often talk about, you know, the, the different approaches of protein engineering in isolation, but they all overlap and they all borrow from each other. So I usually like to draw a little Venn diagram. We would say directed evolution, machine learning, and rational design, right? Rational design being, right, what David Baker's lab and Steve Mayo's group do. Um, 
yes, there there is an overlap. Um, the strongest overlaps that I've seen so far are from, or at least for de novo design in a sense, it's not really de novo design because you're not getting a totally new function, um, are generative models mm. where you say train a model to produce proteins that look like existing proteins. And you oftentimes you'll find that those proteins, you know, they do the same function as before, which is a, a step in the right direction. Um, but the de novo design piece where you really have a completely new function, that still falls thoroughly in the realm of rational design. Um, and it's even extremely challenging in the realm of rational design as well. Uh, so yeah, like I said, we, we need that, that database and in my mind to, to get to the point where we can start answering those questions. Interesting. So with sufficient data, we should all these different toolkits the three yeah. camps probably one day converge, um, and and that would probably lead to some sort of massive gains. Do you have a sense yeah. on like timing for the type of data set? Like like is it more? Do you see it coming from an academic collaboration or set of collaborations? Do you see yeah. kind of industry doing it? Maybe like a big tech company. Kind of what's yeah. your what's your sense on like who actually can like maybe right. spur this on. Yeah. Um, well, I would imagine that such data sets already exist in industry, right? So yeah. specifically in pharmaceutical companies, I would imagine metabolic engineering companies, I would imagine they have them, um, at least on a small scale, right? Um, and even if you can start working on a small scale, say within a protein family, then, then that is progress. So they're probably out there, just not publicly. Um, there is a public database called Protobank um, that, that tried to start pushing towards this, and there is a good amount of data in there, but not kind of to the extent that, that we need yet. Um, so the, the time frame, it, that's really hard to answer. So if we look at like AlphaFold as an example, they were able to be very successful because of the large databases of protein structure and protein sequence. And those databases have been developed over decades. Um, those databases are decades old, but we we need more than that. We we have at this point the ability to collect this data, right? We we just need almost a bit of a culture shift within the community to start sharing it, <laughs> right? And start sharing it in these existing databases. Um, so I I would be loath to predict timing for it. If everybody adapted it immediately, we could start building this up in the next five years as a public one. But I, I doubt that's going to happen that quickly. It often takes like one entity or group to like yeah. do it do it first and then yes. show, oh, this I is possible. Agree. And Absolutely. then everyone else will transition pretty quickly. So someone needs Absolutely. to do it. So I don't I don't know who's going to, maybe you, maybe who, at least Bruce is going to do it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe. I mean, so yeah. My other major grad school project was creating a tool to get this data, you know, really cost effectively. Um, and people in the lab are starting to use it. So, I mean, I, I have now left the Arnold cool. lab as of, I guess, two weeks ago. But yeah, we'll see. Hope, hopefully, hopefully they I mean, can honest, be the ones to show them yeah. how useful it is. And based on your track record, and I recommend, I'll put this in the description too. Uh, Bruce, I don't, know if he, I don't know if he still manages this, but. Some of the uh, you, uh, you have the, some of the most raw annotated code in bio ever. Uh, seriously, like your GitHub repo is incredible. I'll, I'll put it in the description. Uh, Bruce 
uh, I don't. Do you still run that GitHub repo, or did you kind of get, did somebody else inherit that? Because I, I, yeah, uh, I, I yeah. So there are two. One is the MLDE one. I'm I'm the only one running that one. The other one is EBC. That's that other tool. And there are uh, two grad students who are, who helped me put that together. I can't take all the 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 credit yeah. for the documentation on the EBC one. A lot of that was them, but yeah, uh, I'm running I'm running all my GitHub stuff still. It's incredible. I mean, I have friends of mine that are like world class protein engineers too, and they're like, "Yeah, Bruce's GitHub repo is legendary." So uh, <laughs> yeah, I know seriously, That's like I, I several of my friends, they like they're huge fans yeah. of your GitHub repo. So yeah. I'm sure that like you have a real skill for cataloging things and keeping yeah. track of them. Oh. So, yeah, <laughs> I see a cool, right? And I'm like, oh, I'd love to use this. And I go onto the onto the repo, like I have no idea. What what <laughs> it's a big problem it's a I'm big problem it right. yeah it's a big problem in bioinformatics is where the code yeah. uh is not usable but okay okay congrats on the phd uh i hope you, you had some fun and you well learned so uh yeah, kind of uh and you're gonna have some big announcements this summer um yep. kind of what are you uh you know out of grad school what are you looking forward to are you looking for uh, in terms of like like what kind of next five years of your life what do you, what, do you, what direction do you want to go into yeah, uh, great question. I mean, I'm industry bound, um, and ideally, I'd like to keep working on keep tackling these same problems. But um, in, in my mind, one of the most important things is, you know, building this kind of ML in the loop. So building a lab process that involves the machine learning as well, right? So oftentimes, machine learning is added on as an afterthought. We've gathered this data. What can we do with it? Oh, we can use machine learning. But now we can actually say, okay, we want to use machine learning. What kind of data should we gather? What data should we gather next, right? How do we build a system that integrates everything? That's the direction that I want to go. Still looking into the tools and importantly, making these tools accessible for everybody. Um, or at least everybody who's a protein engineer. Because, right, it, it's, it's not all that common to be trained in machine learning in, as protein engineering um, or necessarily even data science or programming. Um, and so like working from command line, for instance, can, can be daunting if you've, if you've never done it before. Um, so trying to build up tools that are easy to use for people who work at, at the bench, right? Who aren't interested in computation at all, but would still find this stuff useful. Absolutely, well, that's a great way to end it. And, uh... Uh, Bruce, you're a superstar. So, like in five, ten years, you know, this is gonna, you know, be a legendary podcast, and I, I think it's gonna be really useful to a lot of people. But uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. I, I really enjoyed being here.